Hello, everyone. Jerp Lanyan here again with Sacktown Talks, having a great show for you today. We have Assemblymember Jose Medina joining us uh, back to the legislature. How are you doing, Jose? And thanks for joining us. Very good. Good to be here with you. Yes. Uh, you know, kind of a, an exciting week. You know, you guys started back at the legislature on Monday. Uh, you know, I guess after that month-long recess, can you kind of tell us how it feels to be back and kind of what you're working on this week? Well, it's very good to be back. Uh, I missed uh, being here uh, in the time that we were gone. And uh, this morning, I presented a bill, uh, AB 1930, in the Senate uh, Education Committee. Uh, it's a follow-up on, uh, on CSU and high school, uh, I'm sorry, uh, entrance requirements at CSU. Uh, a bill that I'm proud to say got out of Senate Ed this morning. Nice, nice. Uh, you know, the past couple of days, there's been kind of news of kind of, I guess, issues between the Senate and the Assembly with bill counts and things like that. Uh, can you give us an update on kind of how that's going and, um, you know, how the issue's progressing and, and, you know, moving forward? Well, this is my eighth year here in the legislature. And, and I know always as we get close to end of session, uh, both houses, you know, are make sure that uh, each house gets the number of bills that they they seem uh, they deem uh, proper, and I know that's what we are doing. And in the end, I have confidence that everything will work out uh, as we approach uh, the end of session. Yeah, you know, you know, beginning of the year, a lot of members had many bills, you know, had, had big hopes, and then you know, COVID nineteen happened, and everyone had to pare their bill package down. Uh, can you kind of tell us, I guess, what your build package looked like before it went on the COVID-19 diet and I guess how it's looking now? Yes. And I, I wish I were on the same diet because I, I could use uh, to to lose some of those extra pounds that I gained when I was sitting at home uh, for the last few weeks. But I, yes, I started uh, with 14 builds, I believe, uh, this this year. And uh, I'm, I'm down to two, uh, two out of the 14. Uh, but as a chair of higher ed, uh, I get what 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 we're doing and trying to make uh, sure that we hear the most important bills uh, right. moving forward. Yeah, you know, earlier you mentioned you know the bill that you just got out of committee was at AB nineteen thirty. Can you I guess right. tell us a little more about that bill and I guess how you got it through I guess this COVID specific uh, right uh, requirements. Right. So AB nineteen thirty grew out of. Uh, CSU's uh, uh, um, effort uh, last year to add a uh, entrance requirement of uh, a quantitative reasoning to their uh, entrance requirements. And it, it was something that uh, K-12 or high schools uh, all over the state uh, had issue with. And, and as did uh, many civil rights groups, uh, a question of equity and what would be the impact of adding this uh, other year quantitative reasoning to the uh, high, to the entrance requirements for CSU, and uh, I, and I very much felt that we did not have enough uh, contact or interaction that CSU didn't uh, with the stakeholders, and for that reason, I I wrote the legislation uh, that I got out of committee today that makes sure that we. Uh, that CSU, if it uh, wants to do something like this again, uh, moving forward, will have uh, a lot more uh, interaction 
with all the stakeholders and the legislature. So I uh, was happy to get it out of committee and ensure that I'll get it uh, out of the Senate floor in the next few weeks as well oh, and wow. get it to the Senate, or sorry, to the governor's desk. You know, uh, you know, very interesting. You kind of, you just said that you were the, you know, the chairman of higher ed. Can you, I guess, kind of tell us about your background and your road to the legislature and kind of why education is a, is an issue you're so uh, invested in? Yeah. Well, I am like many uh, of, of uh, my colleagues in the legislature, and like many Californians, I am a son of immigrants. My parents came to California. Uh, from Panama, Central America. Oh, wow. uh, my father actually came here back in 1948. He came and he came to study. He came to study uh, civil engineering, got his degree at San Jose State and uh, went back to Panama. And when he went back, he took me and uh, my sister who had been born a year before me uh, back home uh, with, 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 you know, with him. Uh, but about four years into uh, living in Panama, uh, my mother and father decided to immigrate, uh, to come as immigrants to California. And he did, and by that time there were three of us. And, uh, and, and then there was a fourth. Wow. But growing up in California, uh, you, know, you know, starting in kindergarten here in California, my parents always told us that education was the way to success. And uh, we all listened to my parents, uh, we all graduated from college. Uh, two of us were teachers, and uh, a third uh, is an attorney. And so uh, education's always been important in my life, and uh, very proud to have been a teacher, have uh, uh, taught 34 years, retired from teaching before I was elected to the state legislature, have been a school board member, uh, community college trustee, and very much enjoy the work I do here in the legislature, uh, both in education and higher education. And, and I think that the lesson learned for me was how important education is. And especially, uh, as I said, for uh, first generation students and uh, the immigrant um, uh, here in the state of California. Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a tr tremendous story. And that's, I guess, a common one we hear uh, with members of the legislature being you know, uh, families immigrating from another country coming here. And then, you know, that first generation born, um, you know, going on and, 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 you know, gaining a higher level of education. You know, we talked to uh, Robert Rivas and, you know, he had a very kind of a, a similar story. I guess, what, what do you attribute that, I guess, that success, that educational success that, you know, these immigrant families are, um, you know, able to achieve, you know, you know, um, well, I, I saw that same thing, and I continue to see that. You know, I, I saw the same thing as a teacher in the classroom, and uh, even now as a state representative, I just read the story of a young girl um, in the high school where I taught, uh, Riverside Poly High School, and she came older than I did. She came as a middle school student, uh, and and I just read her story yesterday, how she was going back and forth across. Uh, the the, the California-Mexico border when she was a middle school student, and then her family moved uh, from, from the border to Riverside. And how she was able to achieve um, with, with the help of counselors and uh, teachers at the very high school where I taught, Riverside Poly High School, and, and is now gonna be in the fall class at UCLA. 
So it, it continues, right? right. We, we saw it in the past. Uh, I saw it in the classroom. Uh, it goes on today. And, and I, and I, you know, having come from that same background, I, I know that parents who sacrifice so much to bring their families to this country, to bring their families to California, do that mostly because they hope and anticipate a better life for their children, uh, even though they, they may have to work harder uh, for themselves, but uh, they, they see a better future for their children. And I see that you know, over and over again. Um, I'm, I'm talking to you here from uh, the Residence Inn and right here at the Residence Inn, uh, a woman who, a uh, housekeeper here, uh, her daughter just accepted uh, into UC Davis. And she shared with me a couple of days ago that it is her daughter's uh, hope to become a doctor. And, and I shared with her how possible that is and how we are seeing that, you know, as I am seeing that at the UCR School of Medicine uh, over and over again. So I guess that's what we call the American dream, right. the California dream, and it is happening all over. I'm very proud that, that this year uh, Latinos uh, make up the biggest uh, entering class at UC for the first time ever. Wow. So it reflects our population finally. You know, I guess uh, an interesting uh, you know, thing with COVID is it's really exposed, I guess, certain inequities um, that our society has had. And, you know, we've just had a great conversation about, you know, repealing Prop 209. And, you know, you guys have done the work and, and put this measure on the ballot to repeal Prop 209. I guess, how do you see that, uh, you know, working moving forward and, and I guess helping, um, you know, these minority families achieve success in the educational realm? Well, as, as well as we've done, uh, I, I know we can do better. Um, I, I mentioned that my brother is an attorney. Uh, my, my brother was a graduate of uh, high school here in Carmichael and then Sac State and then went on to uh, UC Berkeley Law, uh, practicing law now. Uh, but my brother, my brother would share with me that when he was in law school and he's 10 years younger than I am, that uh, or he would share with me that if he took or if he were to give me the book of uh, Latino grads from uh, UC Berkeley Law, that it, it you know it wouldn't be that thick, unfortunately. So I I was already uh, in teaching when 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 UC repealed uh, affirmative action, and then the state of California followed the next year repealing uh, affirmative action statewide. And I saw the devastating effect that, that had, especially in the professional schools, in the schools of medicine uh, and, and the law schools in California. And uh, it, it was a step back. And uh, with everything we've seen in this past year, I'm very uh, hopeful that the, the voters will, will pass it uh, on, the, on the ballot. Yeah, you know, another piece of legislation that you have that's, that's pretty interesting, you know, one of your, your two bills <laughs> uh, left over, AB, what is it, 331. 331. Right, uh, in kind of on the similar line, you know, requiring ethnic studies. Kind of what, you know, why is this something that you picked up on and, wh and why do you think this is so important to um, add to the curriculum? Well, we started our discussion with the importance of education and, and, uh, and that is still the reason why this bill is so important. 
Because for students to, to uh, succeed uh, in school, and I see, see this as a, as a teacher, as a teacher, as I said, you know, 34 years in the classroom, and I, and I taught all grades. I, I taught from elementary to junior high to high school. For students to succeed, they have to see themselves uh, in that education uh, process. Um, unfortunately, I did not. I did not see myself in, in, the, uh, in, in K-12 uh, when I was going through California schools back in the early 1960s. Uh, I didn't. You know, as, as I remember, you know, learning to read, I remember my, my little readers and uh, there was no diversity in them. And then as I moved through the grades, went on to high school, I, I did not see uh, anyone who looked like me or did I see Native Americans or uh, African Americans very much in any of the textbooks. I loved history and I didn't find it in the history books. Uh, and then when I became a, when I went on to college and I was able to take uh, classes like I did in, in Chicano studies and ethnic studies, all, all of a sudden I learned what I had missed uh, before. And it gave me a whole different uh, perspective. And I took that perspective with me um, when I became a teacher. A couple of days ago, I ran across an editorial that a young woman in San Diego, 19 year old, student at Stanford, um, wrote to the San Diego Union Tribune. And in that editorial, she talks about the kind of almost aha moment that students in ethnic studies have. And it's like a light goes on and they see themselves and all of a sudden they become empowered by what they are presented and what they are able to, uh, to learn about and they become engaged. And so studies show, a study out of Stanford, that all students, regardless of their uh, uh, race or ethnicity, do better if they are exposed to those classes. And it, GPA has gone up, um, attendance rates have gotten better. And I saw that uh, uh, firsthand when I taught ethnic studies and Chicano studies at Riverside Poly High School. You know, I guess, how long have you been, I guess, working on this bill and kind of, you know, what, what was its policy path and, and why is it having so much success now than, um, I guess, in the past? Well, I have been working on this bill for four years. Uh, it, it was vetoed two years ago by then Governor Jerry Brown, uh, who, who said in his veto message that students had enough on their plate. Um, so this is the second uh, legislative year that I've introduced the bill. And, you know, there is uh, no doubt that the events of the last few months uh, with Black Lives Matter and the attention that that, that has brought to s systemic racism in this country uh, has, has pushed the bill forward. And, and I'm very happy to, to share that throughout the state of California, uh, from Santa Maria, San Diego, uh, Orange County, school districts and young people are demanding that these kind of classes and ethnic studies be included uh, in the curriculum. And I, I guess, how do you envision, you know, I guess going off of Governor Brown's veto message, how do you envision, I guess, fitting it, this into the existing curriculum? Yeah, 
Well, I, I say that, you know, and I found that students are much smarter than sometimes we give them credit for. Uh, and so, in other words, students are smart and they, they you know, uh, they see what, what we don't say. And, you know, I've never met a more honest group of people than young people. They, 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 they're right. very open and tell you what they think. Right. And so they, they are smart enough to know that, hey, they're not being valued, uh, that their parents are not being valued, that their culture is not being valued. If all they see, if all they are taught uh, is one narrow uh, perspective, one narrow view of history, they're smarter and they get it. And uh, and, and and I would I would argue that, you know, that is what pushes some students out of school and ethnic studies does the opposite. It, it engages students, especially, um, you know, I, I, I've seen, um, I give you one hand, you know, one, one student, right? One student who, who may have been, uh, and, and Anna says the same thing, um, that the ethnic studies classroom is a, is a different space. And for them to come into this classroom where they are embraced and accepted for just who they are. So I was making reference to one student who I had years ago. Uh, you know, he, he, he uh, was probably involved in some activities that he shouldn't have been uh, after school, Latino. We're still friends. And he still thanks me for the class that we have. But, you know, as some kids need uh, sports, and it's sports that, that keeps them engaged in school. Ethnic studies does that same kind of thing in a different way. Right. But it, it, it takes the, the whole individual, um, you know, and, and gives them uh, a way of looking even at themselves. It makes them active learners. Uh, it makes them, as some people have said, scholars themselves. And uh, it, it gives them a place even where, where they feel that they are completely uh, welcome, accepted. Right. You know, th that's an interesting point. You were talking about that student who, you know, when they got to college, they had this aha moment. You know, I remember experiencing that myself when you start, you know, reading different, I guess, visions of history or different perspectives of history, you get an entirely different picture. Um, you know, I guess how much of, of these ethnic studies, uh, you know, classes or requirements can actually be fit into existing curriculum and just requiring that different perspectives of, of history are incorporated into the base curriculum. Right. So my bill, AB 331, requires one semester class. And in that one semester class, which is 18 weeks, usually a, a semester, we're, we're looking at four uh, basic uh, groups, uh, African-American, Latino, Native American and Asian American. So in that 18 weeks, you're looking at four different groups. You know, it's not gonna be an exhaustive uh, study of, of any of, of these four groups, but it's a start, you know, it's a beginning. Uh, and again, um, uh, as, as the one young lady from San Diego said, or, or, or people, a student who I just read about in uh, Orange County, uh, it may be the first time that they're exposed to an African-American novelist. Um, 
you know, the first time they hear about Toni Morrison or about uh, uh, Raisin in the Sun, Lorraine Hansberry, or Bless Me Ultima by Rodolfo Anaya, or some of the heroes of, uh, you know, even the civil rights movement or the Chicano movement, or the first time they hear about Angel Island or, uh, you know, something that, that is in the news quite a bit today, what was the treatment of Native Americans in California in the California missions? So this may be the first time, and and it won't be, as I say, exhaustive, mm-hmm. but it it will make a difference. And I see how it makes a difference in students' lives. My students remind me that all the time when they see me, and uh, and and young people like Anna, who is now a second year student at Stanford University, said it very eloquently, and had her editorial at the San Diego Union Tribune. Yeah, you know, I guess one one common, I guess, uh, complaint we hear, I guess, about adding curriculum is, is I guess, why does it need to be in its own class versus I uh, guess, just fitting in it with, with other existing history or social science? Uh, can, can you, I guess, elaborate on why, why you think this should be a standalone whether, rather than right. pieced within other subjects? Well... Dr. Shirley Weber, who uh, is a author of a similar bill to make ethnic studies uh, a graduation requirement within CSU, and who is the co-author with me on, on 331. And I have had a chance to talk about that uh, in, in the past year as we're moving through. And, and we both agree that it has been 50 years. It's been 50 years since uh, the field of ethnic studies uh, was first, you know, came into existence at San Francisco State. And in those 50 years, we, we haven't seen a lot. You know, we, the textbooks haven't changed that much in either history in the high school, which I taught, U.S. history, or, or the uh, literature classes, English classes, again, in the high school. Nor was it made a, a graduation requirement uh, in, in, the, in the colleges. So in the past 50 years, where a whole lot of knowledge has been created, uh, scholarship and research uh, created in the past 50 years, we haven't seen it. And uh, I know I am uh, 67 years old, uh, and I don't want to wait another 50 years and see that, uh, well, it, it, it didn't change. Right. So I, I, I agree with students. I agree with young people that the time is now. Yeah, I guess, you know, in your experience of teaching, uh, I guess, you know, ethnic studies and, you know, as you said, uh, you haven't really seen a change, you know, much change in the textbooks in the last 50 years. I guess what changes have you seen, I guess, in the curriculum of of ethnic studies uh, within the past, you know, 30 years? Uh Well, as as I I may have shared, I was a history major uh, in uh, Latin American studies major and then got my master's in history. at both at UC Riverside. And so I made reference to the scholarship. You know, that, that is how knowledge is created, is through research and scholarship. And we've had, a, you know, a, I would say a boom of scholarship um, that's been created in, in the last 50 years. Um, you know, that as I went into teaching, uh, I was a bilingual uh, teacher in the elementary school. And, and I remember as we first talked about uh, multicultural education, you know, some schools would put on uh, a Cinco de Mayo 
uh, festival and we'd have ballet folklorico at the school. And uh, we could say, okay, we've done that. And now all of a sudden, um, you know, we're, we're, we're being bicultural. Uh, so it's not, you know, so maybe that was the start, you know, or maybe that uh, that's, you know, was well intended, uh, but, but that wasn't enough. Now we know that knowledge uh, is, is deep. And so that even, uh, you know, in, in, in perhaps in every field, of knowledge, uh, there could be incorporation also of the achievements and contributions uh, of people of color in this country uh, in the different fields. And I think that's come because of, of work uh, by, by scholars. And so I think that's you know, partly uh, some of the changes that have been uh, brought about, uh, that, it, that it runs very, uh, very deep. Interesting. You know, I guess, you know, something that has come up very recently in the past, you know, six months because of COVID-19 is this subject of distance learning. And now that, you know, we're about to start the school year again, I guess kind of what are you seeing in your district on the issue of distance learning? Um, is there a gap between schools and students, you know, having, I guess, the ability to distance learn, having the equipment and I guess the internet connectivity to achieve this? Um, you know, I guess, can you elaborate on that and how, I guess, distance sure. learning is, is going in, in your in your community yeah. and, you know, how, how you think being a, a teacher of, of how uh, it replaces actual instruction. Right. I, I, I know that it proposed that it presents a huge challenge, right? A huge challenge uh, to school districts, to teachers. Uh, in, in my uh, own community, I, I have heard from different uh, school districts uh, that it's not an even playing field on just uh, the, having the ability to access um, distance learning. In other words, there are still uh, school districts uh, in my 61st Assembly District that don't have enough of what I'm using right now, an iPad. Um, that there are still households, right, who, who may not have it. And, and I know that school districts in my own district are making tremendous effort to to alleviate that and have you know, given out many thousands of uh, computers, iPads. Uh, also the part of connectivity uh, is, is an issue. But then even, uh, even within K-12 and going into higher education, uh, again, there is not, this, it's not a level playing field or it's a challenge you know, to all households uh, it is a challenge to all households and to parents how, how they can, you know, perhaps work at home and still monitor their own children's education and participation. Uh, but but it becomes an even more challenge in certain households um, if you have, you know, several children. Uh, mother maybe is not there to supervise. Uh, so I, I am. Um, Leary, and I am uh, uh, somewhat uh, fearful that what we talk about, the achievement gap, uh, will increase uh, during this time of distance learning. Uh, so it is certainly something uh, that I uh, intend to pay attention to and that we all need to pay attention to so that we can you know, try to, to reduce that achievement gap as much as we can. Right. You know, R Riverside County is a very large county, very 
diverse county um, in terms of, you know, where population is. Um, I guess kind of what are the challenges of, you know, getting back to in-person uh, schooling there as you might have a, a rural, or rural part of the county that has very low to no cases that may be able to go in person, uh, but with such a large county and countywide restrictions, um, it's kind of a one-size-fit-all uh, approach, it seems. I guess, has there been uh, any discussions within, I guess, your district about uh, people wanting to go in person and feeling that they're ready to, to have in-person learning, uh, you know, but they can't because of, I guess, some of these restrictions? Right. Well, I, I was uh, paying attention and watching uh, the, the past school board meeting, Riverside Unified School District, went on to midnight uh, talking about the different options and the parents, different options, students, different options. Um, it's not, you know, I, I don't see any easy uh, solutions. Um, you know, I, I, my high school where I taught is across the street from where I live. And I was there early on when schools were let out, when schools went on break and they were passing out the meals. Um, you know, we've talked about it's gonna take more resources. Uh, you know, we cannot ask schools to do more uh, with less. And so I know that schools are looking at different options of how perhaps they can, when, when they reopen, uh, how can they reopen safely? Uh, going back to things that, that, that when we didn't have enough schools and there were not as enough uh, schools being built, we had morning session and afternoon session. Uh, but those are all very challenging. And, and I have watched uh, my fellow teachers uh, trying to develop uh, their lesson plans. I, and I think Riverside Unified is going to begin school in the next two weeks. And uh, teachers are working very hard, staying up late, uh, doing professional development, trying to get their lessons um, done um, to go online. But, uh, but I, I know how difficult it is for, for school districts and, and, and the challenges that it is for parents as well. Yeah. Um, you know, basically, they've, they've, I guess, given a roadmap of, of how, I guess, certain school districts can open and, and close. Um, I guess in your county, you know, I guess how realistic it, is it to, to see, I guess, in-person learning this year? Um, or do you think it's uh, the way off? Well, and then if, if I might add, uh, we have the University of California at Riverside uh, also right. there in my district. And I, I know that UCR uh, is going to have a very limited offering of uh, in-person classes. And uh, they, they may have even a little bit more flexibility uh, than, than uh, the K-12. Um, but I know that there, you know, the medical school may have some uh, uh, on-site, on-hand uh, uh, classes. Uh, I know science labs at UCR may meet, but, but it's going to be a very small percentage of, uh, of the classes offered. But they, they are facing some of the same challenges as K-12. You know, with uh, teachers, faculty, um, and, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the challenges to their safety and health. I guess chairman of, of higher education, is, is this something that I guess you guys have had a committee hearing on or, or looked at, I guess, how a university, uh, you know, with you know, dormitories and you know, people living together, 
um, I guess, how that would work and function in this kind of COVID-19 situation? Right. Well, I, I have been keeping uh, in touch um, closely with the chancellors of, uh, of UC. Uh, early on, CSU announced that they would only be doing distance learning. I, I, so they, they early on decided that. I think community colleges decided that very quickly. I think you, you see, uh, in talking to chancellors, uh, we're, we're more hopeful and we're looking at different ways that they could uh, bring students on campus. Um, still my understanding that, that some students will be on campus even though they'll be distance learning. Um, I have one student from my district, uh, he's gonna be attending uh, UC Berkeley. He, he's a foster child. Uh, he's very excited to be going to Berkeley, uh, but but he 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 you know he's 18. He's moving on, and I know that he will be living in a dormitory at UC Berkeley. And there there could be you know a lot of uh, thousands more students like him uh, who maybe go to campus even while still distance learning. Okay, so I guess students will have uh, housing or an ability to go to the university is just not. I guess be in class, um, right? And 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 at UCR we have a, a, I think a whole group of foreign students uh, who have stayed uh, in uh, student housing dormitories uh, even throughout this whole period. Okay, interesting. You know, wh one thing you know we see being discussed a lot is I guess the quality of education these students are getting in this distance learning situation. Mm -hmm. you know, it looks like they'll have maybe a, a year of distance learning. You know, if you account for last spring and this fall. Um, you know, some people are thinking their kids are going to have to start a grade over or kind of redo stuff. Right. Just kind of what are you seeing, I guess, on the quality of the education these kids are getting? And I guess, you know, how are we, how are we going to know the results of, right. of what we're teaching our kids um, right. you know, down the road? Well, I do think that uh, it is something that we will have to monitor, right? Um, I, I don't think that anyone... Uh, challenge the idea that uh, it would be best or that students do better uh, you know, that students do better I don't think anyone challenges that uh, with face-to-face uh, -face, uh, interaction uh, you know I, I've heard even from college professors uh, say uh, that if if they were in a class they can see in the face of the student whether maybe he gets it doesn't get it uh, this, the, the professor calls and, you know, does, I think like I did in a classroom and teachers do in a classroom, you know, who to call on in a discussion and how to try to bring in someone who, who maybe hangs back more and the outgoing student, you know, uh, you, you, you want to let everybody have a say or everybody participate in the discussion and things like that uh, are, are just more difficult. And I, that's what I heard a professor say, uh, that, 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 you know, with distance learning won't, won't be as easy. Um, the, intera the interaction among students, right? Or as, as they've said in higher education, students themselves have said that a lot of the learning that happens in, in colleges, university, may happen outside the classroom, the discussions uh, that happen you know, to and from class, uh, after, you know, after class, th those are not going to happen. So 
both at the university and in the K-12, I think we're going to have to pay close attention to how well uh, this distance learning is working. You know, one concept that has been floated out there and some some people's opinions is, you know, we should just halt all schooling until basically we can have in-person attendance, you know, and then start again in, in January where hopefully there's a vaccine or some therapeutic uh, where uh, everyone can be in person. I guess, yeah. why is it important to, to, I guess, trudge forward with distance learning than, you know, I guess just stopping until we can do in-person uh, instructions? Right. Well, I would say as a parent, a teacher, uh, that would be drastic. And, and we certainly can do that. So perhaps uh, distance learning is not perfect, as, as we pointed out. Uh, but, but especially for young people, you, you can't stop. I don't think child's development, uh, you know, if you, 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 it's not a switch. I'm sure it's not a switch that we can just turn on and off, say, okay, we're going to take a year break, and then a year later, we're going to start over again. I, I don't think that's good for the well-being of, of young people. Um, college students, you know, you hear some talk about, well, maybe, you know, they'll do that gap year right. uh, and, and take a year off and then wait and see. I, I can see that more for uh, college age young people uh, with K-12. No, uh, I, I am sure it would be hugely uh, detrimental to, to all learning. Uh, if anything like that drastic um, were, were to happen, you know, I think developmentally, and I'm not a psychologist, it needs to happen, continue to happen, right? No, without no. without gaps. Well said. Um, you know, I guess to kind of touch upon a, a subject earlier, kind of I guess your knowledge of ethnic studies. You know, there's a, I guess a lot of thirst, a lot of interest right now in ethnic studies. You know, I, I guess there there's some books out there that you would recommend to our listeners that uh, they check out. Well, sure. You know, I mentioned a couple of novels. Uh, some of those are my favorite. The ones I mentioned, uh, uh, "Bless Me Ultima" by Rodolfo Anaya. Uh, he actually just passed away uh, in the, this past year, in the last few months. Rodolfo Anaya and his first book was called "Bless Me Ultima." Uh, a book that I very highly recommend. Um, you know, I, I used in my classroom, I used uh, Raisin in the Sun, as I mentioned by Lorraine Hansberry, first uh, African-American uh, playwright to reach Broadway. And I remember thinking when I first started using that book, uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, a book, a, a, a play written in the 1960s and and not as timely as it should be. And now I've, I've heard and watched different adaptations of the same book and the same play. And uh, I'm assured by, by my colleagues that it is just as timely today as it was back in the early 1960s uh, when she wrote it. Um, and uh, uh, there's one book that I would mention, James Bank, teaching strategies for ethnic studies that, that I used quite a bit. And uh, I think that's a very valuable one. Also, anything written by Ronald Takaki, a professor uh, at UC Berkeley. Um, uh, he had a book, Strangers from a Different Shore, is one. But anything written by Ron Takaki uh, is, is very valuable. Ron Takaki 
actually started by teaching African-American studies at UCLA before he went on to Berkeley and a pioneer, I would say, uh, in ethnic studies. Okay, interesting. We'll have to check those out. Well, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. I know, I know you got to run, but I guess you have any parting words of wisdom with us uh, before you go? Well, I, I thank you for having me on the program. And uh, I look forward to AB 331 moving forward in the legislature. And I know the governor will do the right thing and, and sign it so that uh, young people throughout the state of California can get some very valuable, uh, much needed uh, information in their lives. And it will change their lives. No, definitely. A, a fresh perspective is definitely needed and, and necessary. And uh, thanks for bringing this to our attention and uh, wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thanks again. Thanks, Jose. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.